Hello and welcome to the God's Story podcast. I'm Brent Siddle. What's the role of suffering in the Christian life? Why do evil and suffering exist at all? in the world. Well, no book of scripture deals with these subjects quite like the book of Job, the mighty book of Job. And my guest today on the show uh, with my co-host, the Reverend Ian Reid, Rido of King's Grace Presbyterian Church, Palmerston North, New Zealand. Rido, hi to you. My guests are uh, Bill and Will uh, Kynes, and they're the authors of a new IVP InterVarsity book called Wrestling with Job. Now, Bill has been the senior pastor at Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church in Annandale, Virginia, in the States since 1986. He's a senior teaching fellow with the C.S. Lewis Institute and a member of the TGC Council and has been a Veritas Forum speaker. And Will, his son, is the Associate Professor of Biblical Studies at Samford University in Alabama in the States, and he's written extensively on Job and wisdom literature. So we have three mighty scholars with us today. We're very privileged. Gentlemen, hello to you all. Hello, hello, Brett. Hi, thanks for having us. Oh, look, it's an absolute pleasure. This is a fantastic book on Job. Now, why is the book of Job such a hard book? Well, I'll go at that. Uh, I was preaching in a church for 35 years uh, before I preached Job. I wasn't sure how to preach Job. Uh, it's a long book. <laughs> it's, uh, much of it is poetry. Uh, it's about a tough subject, the subject of pain and suffering. And it doesn't give us the answers that we want, really. It doesn't explain why there's suffering in the world at all. And then, uh, you know, it, it, it's hard to know how to preach it because, uh, well, you've got this long dialogue in the, in the middle section that goes on and on. And, and you realize the friends haven't spoken the truth at all, at least uh, not completely. So how do you preach that? So that was a struggle. That was a struggle to figure out how do you preach the book of Job? I can relate to this. Ian, have you preached the book on the book of Job? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've only, uh, yeah, I've only been a pastor for maybe, what, three, three or four years. So even though I've been in ministry for quite a while, I, I never uh, had the courage to, <laughs> to preach all of Job. How did you actually break it up, Bill? Sorry. <laughs> it's well, I ended up... I, I ended up not going verse by verse. I, uh, I ended up with uh, about uh, 12 weeks uh, ending. And it ended up being a kind of a Lenten journey for our church. Uh, I was going to do it in the fall, but then that would end up at Christmas. And then that's not a good place for Job. So I started in January leading up to Easter and ended up about 12 messages. Uh, started with a couple of messages in chapters one and two. I, I kind of went to the friends and then I went to Job's response. And then you see some interesting chapters in the, the latter part of that discussion. You've got chapter eight, which is about chapter 28, excuse me, which is about wisdom. Uh, that's kind of tucked in there, a kind of interlude in this, this debate that's going on. You've got Job's final defense and declaration in 29 to 31. Then you've got this long section with this mysterious character, uh, Elihu. Uh, what is he about? Why is he there? What's the purpose of him? And then you've got these wonderful divine speeches in, in 32 to, I mean, excuse me, uh, the 39 to 42, 41. And then uh, Job's response. And then the epilogue. And then I, I tacked on uh, an Easter sermon. 
on how does this all point to Jesus? Mm-hmm. So that's that's kind of how I laid it out. Uh, yeah, and, and and trying to figure out how to lay out was one of the challenges of preaching the book. I have to confess, well, I'm going to bring you in in a minute, but uh, I have to confess, I preached my way through the entire book of Job in about the second or third year of my <laughs> of my curacy. Uh, a really foolhardy thing to try and do, but um, I, I, I thought this is going to be a challenge. Will, have you a- a preached on the book of Job? I have just preached one-off sermons here and there on Job. And I think generally that's how people will do it. And, and it's the easier way to do it because you can include the good news along with the suffering. Uh, so digging into the book in this kind of length, it does make it hard. You know, how do you deal with just the friends in Job's? You know, uh, and so that was one of the challenges that we faced as we kind of worked together on this sermon series. I didn't preach any of those sermons, but we talked about them before each week, uh, how to make it fit coherently while digging in deeper. And the book is really a reflection of those sermons. Each chapter started out as a sermon and then we worked together to adapt it. Yes, it, it, it really is a bit like a drama, isn't it? It's written like a drama with all these speeches. It, it's it's rather like Greek tragedy, I think, in some ways. Absolutely, absolutely, yes, yes. Yeah, it um, is, and actually in the history of interpretation of Job, that people noticed that pretty early on and then used that to draw out some of the features of Job and appreciate them. Why do you write that the and um, these questions are open to either of you two gentlemen so sure. just feel to feel free to jump in as you like why do you write that the key question of the book is will you trust god will you want to go with that yeah sure uh, i mean i think that's uh, a key question that anyone faces but that we particularly face in the context of suffering and for job this is what he is wrestling with with god he doesn't, when you look at the dialogue section and the things that Job says, he doesn't talk a lot about, I want my possessions back, or you know, why did my kids die? What he talks about is his relationship with God. What happened to that relationship? How did it break down? And the question is, is God the kind of God that Job can trust if God allows the kind of things to happen in the world that have happened to Job. That's really the heart of what Job is wrestling with. And when God replies in those divine speeches, that's what God is after, is demonstrating to Job that, yes, he is trustworthy, even if he's not going to explain to Job, and he doesn't explain to Job exactly what happened. He never mentions the wager with the Satan or anything like that, but he is trying to reaffirm that he is the kind of God who's meticulously caring for his creation and sovereign over everything in his creation and can be trusted no matter what Job may face. And I think it's interesting when we face a suffering, uh, we think of it not just as affliction, but as a trial. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, a, a significant way of thinking about it, which I think is biblical. Uh, James talks about it in those uh, those terms, and as a trial, it uh, brings out aspects of character and faith that can come out perhaps in no other way. Yes. To what extent is Job a book? We'll come on and talk about perseverance a, a bit later on. But to what extent is Job a book that deals with cynicism? I I think it's a, a central theme. I, I think Satan represents. Uh, the cynic, in a sense, and he's he's doubting whether there really is such a thing as a genuine believer. Um, but also underneath that, 
he's he's implicitly saying, is there really such a thing as a God who is worthy of worship? Mm-hmm. And I, I, I really like the, the statement in one of Robert Louis Stevenson's stories where the character makes a perceptive observation. I hate cynicism a great deal worse than I do the devil, unless perhaps the two were the same thing. And and I think the devil is the ultimate cynic. There's no such thing as a God who is full of goodness, truth, and beauty. And the cynic denies all those things. Hmm. How does God interact with Satan or the Satan there in that first chapter? Because this in itself is one of the great... Um, the most troubling aspects of the book to many folk. Yeah, so when we think about the role that the Satan plays there in the first chapter, I think it's helpful to think of him. It's not, you know, in the Hebrew, it, Satan has the definite article on it. It's the Satan. So it's not a proper name. Uh, it, in Satan in Hebrew means to accuse. So his job is a little bit like a prosecuting attorney in a law court. Uh, His job is to accuse people. And that's what he does to Job. He accuses Job. And that connects to this trial idea. In the face of the Satan's accusation, Job has the opportunity to demonstrate his faith. And God comes to his defense, but God also plays the role of the judge in the book as well. Uh, and so people are often concerned, well, how can Satan come in God's, you know, come to God, come before God like he does in chapter one? But there he's playing a particular role, that, that role of accusing people. Uh, and that helps set up the stage for what we see in the rest of the book. Yes. To what extent are the so-called friends uh, accusers? like Satan. They are to a degree. I don't think they're playing that role. They fall into that role, though, because they want to defend themselves, right? Because if Job is truly righteous, like he says he is, and yet he suffers in the way that he does, then that means that the friends could suffer also. And none of us like that, right? Whenever we encounter suffering in our lives, we like to try and put people in a different category than ourselves so that we can feel safe from the suffering that's affecting them. And so that's what leads the friends to become accusers as well and to accuse Job of some kind of unrighteousness that might have deserved his suffering because of this self-defense mechanism that they have. Yes, Bill, do you want to add to that? No, I, I, I think it's a common uh, protective mechanism that we all use. I mean, we used it in COVID. I mean, you hear of a COVID death and you say, what was the comorbidity? that contributed in something that I don't have. And and that's a, a, a protective mechanism. And I think it's evident in the way they uh, respond to Job. How does Job respond to the friend's words and their accusations? He doesn't give in. And this is really important. The friends say to Job, hey, you know what? Just offer some sacrifices and repent, and then everything will go right with you. And you can imagine that that would have been an attractive option, even though he knows that he's righteous and he hasn't done anything wrong to deserve what's happened to him. If he can just, you know, maybe these sacrifices will get this to all stop and he might be tempted to do that. But throughout the book, he talks about holding fast to his integrity. That's crucial. So he's not willing to do the ritual answer. That's just a ritual to try and resolve his problem. Instead, he wants his relationship to be righted with God and his integrity to be affirmed by God himself. Yeah. You want to add to that, Bill? Well, I was just going to say, I mean, 
our relationship with God needs to be the, the, the true me relating to the true God. Mm-hmm. And, and apart from that, there's no real relationship. And, and that's what Job is wrestling with. Yes. What can Job teach us about our response to suffering? Well, I'm going to say one thing. As a pastor, uh, I think the congregation I served was encouraged by the notion that you can be honest with God. You're, you're, you're kind of taught and, and the culture kind of pushes you as a Christian to remain with the Job of chapters one and two and sing, blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And that, that's good. Uh, that's true. Uh, in a sense, that's what we want to be able to say. But we know that that's not what we feel. And, and I think reading Job and appreciating the way God, in a sense, validates Job in the end, gives Christians freedom to lament, to complain, and even to protest in their relationship with God. And Job shows us that he can do it. It's a defiant faith that he has, but it is real faith. Mm-hmm. And, and I, think, uh, I think people in the congregation were encouraged by that idea that this is how I feel. I can vent before God and God can take it. And that's okay. Yes, it's fabulous, isn't it? Uh, Rido, do you want to add anything to that from your own pastoral perspective? I think that that's very helpful, isn't it? And there's a there's a sense of reality there, isn't there? That this is a real, these are real human emotions, you know, kind of. And this is not some fake righteous man. This is a real man, uh, kind of with real emotions, you know, kind of working through his frustration uh, and his uh, desire for answers for why am I going through the, these types of things? Do, do you think there's a, a sense that you to get the most out of the book, you do actually have to be in a certain frame of mind or be going through some of those things yourself to kind of really wrestle with some of the, or connect in that same way with Job and, and his emotions. Yeah. I think that that's certainly true. So I did my PhD on the book of Job. I spent three years in a library reading books and articles about Job. But then a few years after that, I hurt my back really badly and had chronic pain for two years. And I think I learned more about the book of Job in those two years of chronic pain than I did in the three when I was reading all the academic articles I could about it. Because before I had the pain that I was dealing with, I couldn't relate to a lot of what the book is really wrestling with. But it's an incredibly insightful book into the nature of suffering, both how Job responds to it, but also how his friends respond to him in the midst of suffering, which is one of the parts of Job that I find most convicting because people, the, you know, the friends, they get a really bad rap, but I see myself in the friends so much. And so it yeah. really challenges yeah. me in the way that I respond to others in suffering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the friends, I mean, the friends and the dialogue with Job represent what goes on in our own lives, in our own hearts, our own minds. Mm-hmm. We have that inner dialogue ourselves as we're going through this. Yes, uh, I think that's a that's an interesting way to perceive it. Yeah, why is the idea of a mediator? Because we get we get all the business of the lawyer. He wants a lawyer. He wants a law court. The whole thing is is almost set in a, a, a legal setting, or set up in a, a legal court setting or a court way, a legal way. Why is the idea of a mediator or redeemer so important to Job? Yeah, I mean, chapter nine, verse thirty-three is this crucial vision that Job has. He said, if only there was someone to mediate between us, someone to bring us 
together, someone to remove God's rod from me so that this terror would frighten me no more. And so he has this vision of someone who could put his hand on each party here in this dispute, you know, someone who can identify with Job and his suffering, but someone who also can identify with God. He needs that person in the midst of this dispute with God. At first, he just says, but there's no one like that. So what am I going to do? But then this idea grows in his mind as he wrestles with his suffering. And we see in 1621, he returns to it, this idea of a witness. And then that famous passage in 1925, I know that my Redeemer lives. I think he's pushed to that conclusion because he remembers or he believes strongly that God is righteous and good. He knows that he is also righteous he needs some way for God to, to, to meet with God. Uh, and he doesn't know how that's going to work. He doesn't know how that can happen. How can he argue with God and win, so to speak? So he, he assumes, well, there must be someone who can do this communication for us. Yes. So therefore, how does the book of Job point to Christ? Well, I think in that very way, we have that mediator. We have that mediator, you know, Job, uh, Job comes to the point where he realizes that God is the ultimate source of his problem. So God himself has to be the solution to the problem. And, and that's where we are with God. I mean, we, we, as sinners before a righteous God, we are without hope. And so God himself has to come to our aid. God himself has to be the answer to our problem. And, and I think that's an important way that, that Job points us to Christ. Of course, it, one obvious way is that he, he's, Jesus is the ultimate innocent sufferer. Jesus is the one who says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus enters into that same kind of experience that, that Job has on our behalf, experiencing what we've experienced. So, that, you know, I think that's a significant uh, aspect as well. Uh, yeah. What does God say to Job when he finally appears at the end of the book? <laughs> so I've already uh, alluded to this a bit. The way that I see the divine speeches, and there are as many different interpretations of divine speeches of the divine speeches as there are readers of the divine speeches. But what I see happening here is in chapters 38 and 39, we get this kind of safari tour through God's creation of all these different animals. Uh, and what God is communicating to Job is he cares for all of these creatures, right? He, he presents himself as the mother raven giving the food to the raven chicks uh, or the mother ostrich who cares for the egg. Uh, and so what his point there is a lot like Jesus's point about how Jesus says, you know, a, a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without my father knowing it or consider the lilies, right? If God can care for all of those animals, then clearly he cares for Job. But then he switches uh, in chapters 40 and 41, it talks about these terrifying creatures, the behemoth and the Leviathan, and they represent the chaos that is in this creation. But God is saying, I'm more powerful even than those things. Nothing is outside of my sovereign control. So that means whatever Job may be facing, God is in control of that as well. And I think that Job gets that message. So to what extent, though, I wonder, does God want Job to grow up and mature through the suffering and learn how to tame creation, learn how to deal with Satan and evil and chaos and monsters and things like that? Yeah. So some people read the divine speeches in that way, and they'll, they'll often uh, emphasize <laughs> the verse that says that God created behemoth just as I created you, right? And so they'll, they'll 
they'll focus on that. And, you know, there's a feature to that. But the point of behemoth, even in that passage, is that God is even greater still. So he's not going to say, hey, you need to deal with your own problems, Job. <laughs> or you need to rely on me to deal with your problems. But I do think that growth is a crucial part of what Job gains through this whole experience. And you see that in 42.5, where he says, I had heard of you with my ear, but now my eye has seen you. So what he's gained is a deeper knowledge and relationship with God than he ever had before. Yeah, but it's not as if he's changed from being a sinner to being righteous, because he mm -hmm. feared God from the beginning. Yeah, And that's critical. He feared God from the beginning, and the fear of God is wisdom. But it's a deepened fear. And, and so I, I, I don't think you can say, well, now he gets it before he didn't. I think it's just a, a deepened expression of what was already there. Yes, God makes it quite clear at the end of the book that Job isn't guilty, as, as I read it, that, that Job isn't mm -hmm. righteous. But I wonder how God punishes the friends for what they've said about Job, because they don't get off lightly, do they? <laughs> they don't. And, and the way that I see that is the friends, they have such a small view of God that they feel like they need to attack Job to make Job's experience fit into their small view of God. Job, on the other hand, has such a big view of God that he's willing to even protest, maybe even we could say attack God in order to defend that view of God. And so we, you know, the friends, I do think that they are trying to defend God, but the way they are doing it is so self-serving. God's not going to take that kind of defense. That's not what he wants. Uh, so Instead, he prefers the defiant faith that we see Job express. Last question, because we're just about running out of time. Unfortunately, gentlemen, I would have loved this interview to carry on longer. But <laughs> how does the book show that God has ultimate control in the world and in the universe and that God is in control in spite of evil and suffering? I think that's the point of the divine speeches. The, the, the glory and majesty of God. He is king forever and I think Job comes to appreciate that. He understands that his experience is nothing compared to the knowledge of God. And he's, he's content to say, if, it, if, God, if I could understand everything about God, he would not be worthy to be worshipped. Mm. God we can easily understand isn't big enough. And I think that's, Job comes to appreciate that. There we are, Bill and Will Kynes, the authors of this fabulous new IVP book called Wrestling with Job. So if you haven't read Job in a while or you haven't read Job at all, get hold of the book and get the, the um, book of Job open and you will be rewarded with a very, very rich and deep study of faith and perseverance in suffering. And thanks to our creative team at Liquid Edge who sponsor this podcast and take care of things behind the scenes. Gentlemen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Yeah, thank you very much. Thanks, Rido. Thanks, Brent. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the God Story Podcast. To ensure you never miss an episode, please subscribe. And if you're enjoying the podcast, please take a moment to give us a rating and leave a review. This will help more people discover God's story for themselves. If you'd like to get in touch or learn more, please visit godstorypodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. That's godstorypodcast.com.